This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Um, hi, this is Carl Pillemer from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. I'd like to welcome you to another one of our podcasts on doing translational research. It's a great pleasure to have my friend and colleague here with us today, Corinna Lurkenhoff. Corinna is an Associate Professor of Human Development. She also has an appointment at the Weill Cornell Medical College, and she is the Director of the Laboratory for Healthy Aging. And since she'll be talking about herself, I won't say too much, but I will say that Corinna's research focuses on age differences in time horizons, personality, and emotional experience and their influence on mental and physical health over the lifespan. Um, A central goal is to understand how age groups differ in their approach to health-related choices and to explore ways to optimize such choices over the lifespan. Uh, Every other year, the Bromfenbrenner Center hosts a national conference with experts on an area uh, of interest in human development. And with Anthony Ong, Corinna co-chaired this recently. And a book, is about to appear, excuse me, a book has appeared. Yes. Based on this conference called Emotion, Aging, and Health, again edited with, with Anthony Young and published by the American Psychological Association. As its title suggests, it explores the relationship between aging and emotion. And the book also, and, and very relevant to our talk today, takes a translational research focus to some extent, looking at how research in this area can be applied Well, so welcome, Corinna. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if maybe we might begin with a little bit about uh, the conference and the book and what uh, what sorts of things are covered or what you think is, you know, are some major messages from it for folks who are who we hope are going to go out and buy it now to read it. Yes. So when Anthony Ong and I were invited to co-chair this conference a couple of years back, when we were discussing, we were wondering what are some really important research directions in the field of aging and health that are not um, really linked together yet. So there is a very strong line of research that looks at age differences in emotional experience and um, how they develop and how they pan out in the individual lives of people. And then there's another strong line of research that looks at the influence of emotions on health across the lifespan, and by extension also uh, the role of emotions in helping people to age and to age in a healthy way. And those two lines of research weren't really connected, and our goal was, during the conference and in the book, to bring researchers from both sides, so researchers studying um, the influence of aging on emotion, and on the other hand, the researchers uh, studying the influence of emotion on healthy aging, get them together and engage them in a conversation that is continued in the book in order to develop new lines of research and see whether there's any areas of overlap where we can begin to to develop some synergies. That's great. And and again, we encourage everyone to go out and look at this book. And let me ask, because it's closely related, you know, our first more substantive question for you is just a little bit about your own research interests. Uh, Is there a way you could summarize the kind of work you do or the kind of problems that you address? Uh, The one way we think about this is what's the major question or questions that you see your work is trying to answer? Well, in many ways, when people think about aging, they immediately think about decline. 
So in a sense, they're mistaking the aging process, the healthy aging process, as the process of dying. Because usually when you think about where old people are, you think they're in nursing homes, um, you think they are in hospice care, right? People, people, often people equate aging with dying, but that's not the case. We now know that there's separate stages of life. There's a process of healthy aging, and then there's the process of dying. And the process of healthy aging is characterized by a lot of stability in uh, important areas of functioning. There are some decrements in people's uh, physical health and some decrements in people's um, fluid cognitive abilities. So that's the ability to pro process information very quickly. But there's a lot of stability. And then at the same time, we see positive developments in other areas, most importantly, in people's emotional experience. So I always tell my students that they will never feel as bad as they feel right now when they're in their late teens and early 20s. We have pretty good evidence that over the lifespan, negative emotions decline and positive emotions remain stable. And at first, when this was documented, researchers were so surprised by this that they termed this the paradox of aging. How come that even healthy aging is associated with some decrements in cognitive functioning and some decrements in people's physical abilities, increases in, in uh, chronic pain? And then at the same time, people are feeling happier. They have equal or higher positive emotions, and there's a decrement in, in negative emotions. So they called this the paradox of aging because they simply couldn't make sense of it. And so now, over the past two decades, researchers have tried to disentangle this paradox of aging, and it turns out what we need to do in order to make sense of this is to move away to look at age per se, as if it's doing anything by itself, right? The, the numbers ticking up on... Um, on our birthday cakes, right? But instead, it's mechanisms that are associated with, with aging, but not the same as aging that are playing a role. So in my own work, I'm interested in the role of people's personality development, in the role of experience, and also in the role of subjective time horizons, both in terms of how much time people feel they have left in life, but also how they perceive themselves in the present relative to the future and the past, how much they feel connected to the future and the past. And once we start looking at these psychological conceptualizations of what people learn, what people think about, how they think about their own aging, I'm also doing some work on perceptions of aging and expectations of aging, once we understand those, we can then make sense of what happens with people's emotional experience, and it no longer really looks like a paradox. That is such an incredibly interesting area, and I actually wish we had more like an hour just to go over that. Uh, and I also know you've done a lot of work in decision-making and those sorts of things. Because we know one another, I happen to be aware of one feature of your work, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I you know, had always thought of you as someone who was more of a basic researcher, who was really interested in, fun in advancing fundamental knowledge. And uh, unless I'm wrong, over the years, it seems like you have become more interested in this concept of translational research and translating your work into real-world settings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, was that an evolution, or is that something you were always interested in? Um, I developed my interest in aging working in applied settings. So I've worked in nursing homes, I've worked in clinics. And so my initial interest in aging came from these practical experiences in clinical settings, looking at the kinds of decisions that older people were making. But then as I went through my training, of course, there was an interest in the basic mechanisms that are driving this, but I've always kept in mind this notion that if we don't understand how these basic mechanisms play out in real-life settings, 
maybe we're doing something wrong in the laboratory, right? And so if you look at the literature on aging and decision-making in particular, there's a lot of studies that are looking at very specific um, sub-mechanisms in certain aspects of decision-making that are kind of distilled um, in isolation in lab settings. But then the question is, how much does this really work in the real-life setting? Right? And so in, in one of my studies, um, this was together with uh, Joe Michaels, who was... Um, um, we, we collaborated on the study where we, we knew how older people approach a task. We know, knew how younger people approach a task. They use different mechanisms to um, address this decision task. And then we gave older people instructions to process the information more like younger people do. And what we found is that actually older adults' decision quality went down. Right. So there's this notion that um, just because we see deficits in certain aspects of decision-making in the laboratory doesn't mean that they necessarily play out the same way in real life. And in some ways, if we get too hung up on them and try to make older people look like younger people in their decision strategies, it can actually backfire. And so when you go into clinical decision-making, um, the complexity just increases um, exponentially. Right? So in those settings, you don't just have an individual person who's making the decision. And of course, they're, um, the decisions are way more meaningful than the ones that they would be making in a laboratory. But you also have their social network um, who has uh, input in the decision because they need to provide support uh, for whatever pans out in the decision. And then, of course, there's the relationship to the healthcare provider who makes recommendations. But... Um, the, the relationship between the patient and the healthcare provider has implications in terms of how much the patient is actually going to take them up, right? So there's the whole interpersonal component that comes in. Um, and so it sounds like for you, and, and I found this too in my own work, that doing work in real world settings, you know, it's not just a sort of helpful, beneficial thing, but it actually helps answer some key scientific questions. Yeah, in many ways, I think the, the work that I do in applied settings feeds back into my laboratory work. So, for example, I, a couple of years back, I did a study examining perceptions of time horizon, which, of course, is a basic research interest of mine. But I examined it um, in a qualitative stu study in the context of chronic pain. So I asked um, older, uh, older patients with chronic pain about how they perceived the, the length of um, how, how, long, how much longer their condition would last. I asked them to um, tell me about how quickly certain treatments would work and whether they were concerned about long-term side effects. But then I also asked their healthcare providers and I asked both physical therapists and physicians about their input on the best treatment for older adults with chronic pain. And what I was surprised to see was that there was not just one time horizon that people were operating under, but there, 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 there were multiple time horizons. Right. So on the one hand, uh, people with chronic pain had this feeling that they needed immediate help. Right. And one participant told us um, if my pants were on fire, I, I couldn't wait until next week. So there was a sense of urgency at the same time as people um, oh, as people get older, they seem there seems to be a tendency to perceive whichever um, health condition one has as more chronic. In fact, there was one woman who told us, yeah, I had the same thing in my 20s, but I was young then, and so I knew it would go away. Now I have the same thing, and I know it's here to stay, right? So this wasn't based in any kind of medical understanding. It was just based in the expectation that something is more chronic as people get older. And then what is the influence on that on the long-term treatment choices that people make? If they have the sense that this is something that is part of their self almost, right? So if, it, if they integrate it as, as this is part of my identity now, I'm a person with chronic pain, will this make them less likely? 
to um, engage in possible treatment approaches. And then, of course, different treatments for chronic pain also have time horizons, right? So um, a lot of medications help immediately, but then if you want to engage someone in physical therapy, you have to get somewhat of a buy-in. They have to be willing to stick with you in the long run. And there was one participant who told us, I was doing great on physical therapy, but then I realized I would have to do this until the rest of my life. And that's the point when the person gave up on the, mm -hmm. the physical therapy. And this was a 76-year-old, right? So it wasn't that it was, you know, decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. And actually, it makes me think of another one of our questions for you. So I know you are a co-investigator in the Translational Research Institute for Pain in Later Life, which includes both a lot of clinical medical folks from the medical school and also behavioral scientists here and have worked, uh, I know, and some of your students have worked uh, with community agencies. One of the things that we're interested in, um, in the Bronfen Brenner Center, is what it's like for researchers to engage with um, uh, clinicians, practitioners, uh, community agencies. Uh, you know, do you have any thoughts about that or advice for people like you who are sort of leaving the laboratory and doing some of this work in, like, agency or healthcare settings? I think it really helped to do some qualitative studies because it really just helped us to, to literally listen to the perspectives of the clinicians who were working in um, applied settings to understand what their concerns were and what their conceptualizations of different problems were. Because that way we could then develop questions that were assessing those concepts instead of tr uh, trying to take concepts from the laboratory and just applying them without thinking too much about it. For example, there's this, this tendency of people to, to show temporal discounting, right? So to prefer a larger monetary payout immediately, uh, a, a smaller monetary payout immediately over a larger monetary payout that comes in the future, right? So people are not willing to wait for more money later on. And then when people try to um, translate this into healthcare settings and trying to apply it to um, health condition, they ended up with really odd questions such as, would you rather have one week of migraine right now or two days of migraine one year from now, right? So it's very artificial questions. And so in order to not get stuck in this gap between what's happening in the lab and what's happening in applied settings, it's necessary to first listen to people working in applied settings, keeping in mind the basic mechanisms that we observe in the lab, but then finding a way to developing questions that work in real life and some have some, some real validity in those settings. Yeah, and one thing that I always enjoy meeting with people working in the field is those moments where you realize that they just have a completely different concept in their head and that I just didn't get it until that point, that they really see this in a fundamentally different way. And then to work from that and understand and move forward to a deeper understanding of the issue. And I, I really enjoy those moments because they, they blow my mind. And I'm, I'm assuming they, they blow um, the, the mind of them, the people I'm talking to as well. And then from this moment of, wow, we just didn't get this until now, we can move into uh, a new understanding and new research projects. No, it really is a trip. I mean, it really is so enjoyable. It's almost like a kind of cross-cultural communication, and it's so enlightening. Um, well, let me ask you well, one thing that, that we like to ask our um, interviewees is as you think about all the work you do, if there are one or two things that, that when you think about your research area that you would like um, the general public to know, is there one sort of message from the work you've done that, you know, um, if it were broadcast 
you know, in the news that you would like people to take home, not scientists, but lay people who might be interested in this area? Well, off the top of my head, I could think about a lot of different stories, but I think the single most important one is to understand that aging is not dying and that healthy aging really comes with a lot of stability, right? And then that the phase of dying that happens at the very end of life is distinct from that. And some recent work um, with researchers at the Humboldt University led by, by Dennis Gerstorf, I was able to examine um, this transition from the healthy aging trajectory or what we call pre-terminal to the terminal trajectory and it's really quite striking. But often people mix up the two and so when they perceive the first signs of aging in themselves, they feel, oh, this is a downward trajectory. And instead what they should be doing is to see whether there are minor adjustments that they can make in the way they go about their life in the way they relate to others, in the way they regulate their emotions, that will help them to, to overcome some, some minor issues that come with aging and then continue this trajectory of stability and not kind of become a victim of their own aging stereotypes and think, oh, no, this is it. This is the beginning of the end, the first gray hair. There I go. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all the more important, too, with new research showing that, that, our, that if you have negative attitudes towards aging, you actually do well, uh, you know, you do worse. Well, I actually can see a t-shirt now, like with aging is not dying. <laughs> I think uh, that would be a great um, motto for us. Well, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time and it's been great talking with you. And thanks for sharing these ideas with us. And I hope that, uh, that we can have you back again. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.